Welcome to the Journey to Medicine podcast, where you'll find fascinating stories from Stanford students and faculty about their struggles, setbacks, and successes in their journey. Follow along as these conversations help inspire and empower you. And now, your host, Sarita Kamani, faculty at Stanford. We have an excellent team that has come together today. My co-host, Dr. Michael Zhang, who's a neurosurgery resident at Stanford. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me again. And our fabulous intern, Grace Johnson. Hi, thanks for having me. And I am thrilled to welcome our guest, uh, Dr. Sophia Yen, who is a clinical associate professor of pediatrics at Stanford. And she is also CEO and co-founder of Pandia Health, the only doctor-led, women-founded, birth control delivery company. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. I think uh, we can start with, uh, let's start with your day-to-day -day work. I mean, it just seems like you do have a lot of responsibilities. And uh, so if you can give us a little bit of uh, what your day-to-day -day work looks like. Yes. So as CEO and co-founder of a company, my life has changed drastically from that of an academic physician. As an academic physician, I spent three half days a week in clinic, which are pretty much full eight-hour kind of clinics. Um, it would be two teen clinics and then one half day a week in uh, Stanford's pediatric weight clinic for morbid obesity, pre-bariatric surgery. And then the other parts of the days would be spent on research and advocacy. But as my startup took off, um, I dropped a clinic, then I dropped another clinic, and now I'm down to one half day of the weight clinic because it's the most conveniently scheduled one. It only takes up half day of Friday and that leaves me the rest of the week to work on my startup. And so on the startup days, it's just a combination of team meetings three days a week for like one hour. And then before and after, um, I see patients on our platform as well. It's a telemedicine and pharmacy platform. So I'm not doing the pharmacy side, obviously, but the telemedicine platform, we have patients fill out a questionnaire, same questions they would answer if they came into my office about birth control, past medical history, what medications are you on, do you have liver cancer, breast cancer, any kind of contraindications for birth control. And then we have it uh, AI'd in that the questions are colored green, yellow, red. Green is go ahead, write the prescription. Mm -hmm. Yellow, you better ask some follow-up questions. And red, don't write this prescription or consider progesterone-only pill for this mm -hmm. patient. And then we uh, have... A prescription platform. We have an EMR, electronic medical record that we do. And then we have a counseling email, first time on birth control. Make sure you don't take it first thing in the morning on an empty stomach. If you want to use the birth control to skip your periods, this is how you do it. And then set and so that is kind of that interaction. Mm -hmm. um, in the weight clinic, it's your standard, you know, patient visit where I see new patients for about an hour and I see uh, follow-ups for about a half an hour. It is a educational academic clinic. So we have residents, medical students, fellows, and if they're in attendance in clinic, then I give them a lecture and then I send them to see the patient. They come out, report. I review the findings. We go into, we make a plan and then we go into the patient. I re-review the physical exam, re-review any key elements of the questions, and then we discuss the plan or I let the resident mm. take over and then I input 
when the resident okay. uh, needs extra input. Uh, this, this seems like you're really, really busy. So actually, uh, we will definitely be discussing a little, little more about Pandia Health, but I wanted to go back and uh, ask you about where you grew up and what were your early years like and how were you interested? Were you interested in medicine at that time or that came later? Yes. So I have been, um, I was born in Chicago. My dad was a PhD student and my mom was a nurse and she basically put him through his PhD in addition to his scholarship and whatnot. So there's always been that health kind of in our family. I was shipped to Taiwan for a couple of years because my parents couldn't afford to take care of me in the United States. So my aunt raised me for about two years and then came back to the United States when my dad did his postdoc at UC Berkeley. And then from there, I've been in California since kindergarten. And so I'm one of the few Bay Area um, born or ish, you know, been here since kindergarten kind of person. Went to the local high schools here. So if anybody here is from uh, Homestead High School, cheers to Homestead <laughs> High School, Cupertino Junior High, and then Montclair in um, Los Altos is where I went to elementary school. I've always wanted to be a doctor since I was in fourth grade. And part of it, you know, is the Asia stigma. Are you going to be a doctor, an engineer, or a programmer, <laughs> yeah. right? Those are your options. <laughs> That's right. and so, I, but did you choose being a doctor instead of being a programmer or a lawyer or something because of your interest in sciences or somebody told you you need to be a doctor? <laughs> I chose being a physician because I like people and I like science. And I wasn't going to go, do, later I learned, do bench laboratory kind of work, not my thing working with mice or worms or cells, though I've done all of that, though I haven't done the worms, but I've done the mice and the cells. And um, I was at MIT and that's where I did a lot of bench work also as a pre-med. Since I've been pre-med since fourth grade, throughout high school, throughout college, my entire life has been preparation to get the perfect resume, the perfect criteria to get into medical school. And so every summer I was in a lab and I hated lab, but in medicine, you do whatever the heck is necessary to get into medical school. And so I have worked in labs at Harvard. I've worked at labs at Stanford. I have worked at labs at UCSF. And um, growing up, I was always jealous of all my friends, um, parents' friends. They would be like actors or famous sports people. And all my friends, my parents' friends were PhDs. And I was like, that's just so boring and horrible. <laughs> but in retrospect, they got me all these internships at their labs, at these prestigious institutions, and were able to get me amazing recommendations that got me into MIT, that got me into UCSF, one of the best medical schools in the world. Mm -hmm. So um, that's, you bring up a really interesting point because many students ask us that, that do I have to fill in these or check these boxes to get into medical school and further? And I guess the issue is that, do you think that they need to, even if they don't like it? I think that is part of medicine. You suck it up and you do whatever the heck is asked of you. Right. And so um, I have seen people take alternative tracks, but I need to warn you that the alternative tracks are not guaranteed. Whereas if you follow the tried and true, 95% success rate, you go a little weird, 
10% success rate. And the example I give is I got to medical school and every single summer had been spent working in labs that I hated and I wanted to die. And I not really wanted to die, but I was not happy. But I did it and it looked good and it got me the right recommendations and it got me into the right places. Um, if you want the formula, I've, I've actually been profiled in a how to get into medical school book. It has my essay, so you can see my sample essay. But my tips are you must do research if you can. You don't necessarily need to be published. Being published would be amazing. Getting an abstract would be great, but you have to do some research if you want to get into the best medical school. Our joke is, you know, it doesn't matter what medical school you get into, as long as you graduate, they'll call you doctor. But if you want to get into one of the top medical schools, I strongly suggest you do some research, at least to say you tried it and you didn't like it, you know, but to have never tried it would be really wrong. Um, then you have to do some volunteer work. Back in my day, which was a long time ago, 1997 is when I got into medical school. 93, 93, got into medical school, 93, sorry, so much education. <laughs> and then, um, and then graduated in 97, then did a residency and then did a fellowship, then did a master's of public health. But back then, 30% of my class at UCSF had volunteered at San Francisco General. So I absolutely recommend that you volunteer at a hospital so that you can say, I've seen the hospital. I know what it's like to see blood and I don't go screaming the other way. But it also makes a great essay. You see crazy stuff go down at San Francisco General mm -hmm. Hospital. And so I was able to make several essays based on my experiences there. And then up here, I talked about the personal and the personal story was that I got a corneal ulcer and I'm totally just freaking out in Stanford ER with this corneal ulcer. And the doctor comes up to me, puts his hand on me and he goes, it's going to be okay. And then <laughs> like, cause he's a doctor. I was like, ah, yes, of course what he's saying is true. And mm -hmm. the phrase that I put in my essay, maybe it helped, maybe it didn't is we can always comfort even if we can't cure. Because there are so many things that we can't cure, but we must remember that we also can comfort, you know, empathize, be a good physician. So we have sometimes uh, medical school admissions, right? People come and talk to students and they say, show what your passion is and do what you're passionate about. But I think sometimes what, what I'm hearing is that even sometimes it's more about if you want to get into good medical school, you have to check those boxes. If we can turn the passion into that would be absolutely great, right? Exactly. Um, but you'd feel that we do need to check some of those boxes to get in there. I mean, it's just part of being a good physician. You have to have a questioning scientific mind, and that is the research. Part of being a physician is working in a hospital. So if you have not volunteered in a hospital, you have not tested this mm -hmm. hypothesis. Basic litmus test, you know, mm -hmm. have you shadowed a physician, but much more mm -hmm. volunteering. It shows that you're giving, uh, but also you see crazy stuff. Thanks for sharing all that. Uh, it's kind of interesting to hear how, you know, what you described as the 95% uh, carved out path still matches a good chunk of what I've experienced too as well. Um, but I do think hindsight is twenty twenty, and obviously you've had a very interesting career since volunteering at San Francisco, San Francisco General. Do you think that knowing what you know now or your experiences now, would you have crafted your your preparations for a medical school, medical school applications differently? I mean, maybe you would have done research, but would you have done something else, you know? I think I did what was needed. 
I think had I done anything different, it would have been different. And the example I give is when I was interviewing for Harvard undergrad. I met with this woman. I was a high school student. I had straight A's. I was number six or eight in my school. I was the president of everything. Our newspaper had won sixth place in the nation. And she's like, you're amazing. You can get into any school that you want. And then I forgot I'm an Asian American pre-med. These are the people that I'm going up against. If I was a different ethnicity, a different I mean, there's just so many Asian American pre-meds that you have to be able to beat out everyone else because there's only so many that they can take. And so if I hadn't done the standard, I think it'd be very risky to do the alternative. Certainly, I have a friend who went to Harvard, but Harvard, and he is a classics major, but he struggled a lot harder at UCSF because I'd been at MIT, a bio major. I'd taken microbiology, molecular biology. I was like so far ahead of him that when we were in medical school, I could kick back. But him being a um, classics major, you just study like crap. And then my sister-in-law, who came seven years after me, took her seven years to get into medical school because she was an English major. And again, you can be an English major, but you better be a kick butt English major to get into medical school. It's far easier to be a straight up science person. Yeah, so that's actually really interesting because what the trend now at least what I see is medical schools promoting that you don't need to have much science or you can have other majors. We actually really like diversity. Um, and I think there was a study out of Mount Sinai, which said when they looked at people who came from different pre-med and other majors, they actually did similar in medical school, but you saw it firsthand that it was more difficult for them. Like they had to put in much more work, it seems like. And, and are you applying to enough schools? That's the other thing. Mm -hmm. Is if you're only applying to the top 10 and you have an alternative thing, might not happen. If you apply to 200, yes. Hopefully one of the 200 will happen. So it, it's a question mm -hmm. of which medical school. And it, I went to UCSF. And mm -hmm. UCSF, I feel, has one of the most diverse students. And I absolutely agree that somebody who's come from a different path. So we had people who had been bank people, people who had run their own businesses, people who had been lawyers, people who had been firefighters, very diverse student audience. But that was like 10%, right? Mm -hmm. So 10%. And those people are absolutely dedicated because they're letting go of that to go into medicine. Mm -hmm. But are they going to be as academic as somebody who's been doing research for the past eight years, every single summer, who's published, who knows how to run a lab, you know, so they will be a good doctor. But will they be academic? And, and people with diverse backgrounds also go back to serve their community. So that's great. Mm -hmm. We need people right. who are willing not to be in academia. We need people who are willing to work where no one else is willing to work. So absolutely diversity, but there is absolute bias, right? Mm -hmm. Like they'll look at your scores, your MCAT grades. They'll, they will look at your research. They will look if you're published. They need that certain package. I know that the students sometimes wonder if they just do things so that they can check those boxes, is that worth it? If you were asked that question, would you say, yeah, going back, yes, I think I needed to do that and it was worth it. 
Yeah. So I, I wouldn't do it any differently. I'm not, I think that's part of medicine is we're not risk takers. Usually we, we like a sure thing and you want that kind of person dealing with your health. You know, me working in the ER was not a negative. It was absolutely positive because I wanted to see, I love all of the human body and its functions. It's just so exciting to me. So being there, being as close as I could be and being helpful and running blood and taking notes and being a scribe, like that's all preparing me to be a doctor, learning about the medications, learning about the treatment, watching the patient doctor interaction, you know, the, mm -hmm. so much you can learn from volunteering. The lab work was, you know, I absolutely have a research mind and hypothesis testing. I just didn't like pipetting. You know, that, that was not my thing. You mentioned your colleagues who were like classic majors and English majors. Um, for you yourself, after obviously going through a rigorous science training prior to medical school, did you find yourself struggling with something or uh, finding particularly challenging uh, at that stage of your training? The first um, two years, as you know, oftentimes is academic, in classes, taking tests, learning science, and catching up people who didn't have it. But um, at the time, you know, molecular biology, cell biology was, I guess, newer for other people. And so if you weren't a bio major, then you wouldn't have had those classes. But I found the first couple of years of medical school for those classes easy because this is my second time around. I've already done it. I could totally pass out of it. And then biochemistry, we all had to pass that for the MCAT. So I don't know why we did it again. And, and then, um, but certainly the drugs, the diseases, a heck of a lot of memorization, um, the pharmacology, those were all new. The physical exam, you know, never had seen any of that. But I absolutely had an easier time than anybody who wasn't a bio major. And therefore, I was allowed to spend more of my time on the stuff that I had a hard time with. What, what was something that you felt like you had a hard time with? I think histology and anatomy. I just mm -hmm. suck at anatomy. My trick for you all for anatomy and maybe learning style, though technically I read something lately that visual and audio are all the same. But anyway, um, I think we do have different learning styles. For anatomy, what was great was a coloring book. They had a coloring book with all the bones and with all the veins and all that stuff. And then I could like picture it and see it. The whole dissection thing was just, I was never meant to be a surgeon because anatomy and 3D and no, no. Okay. So you, you found out during medical school that surgery is something that you don't want to do. So then you finished and you, how did you decide to go into pediatrics? Yeah. So I've always been passionate about reproductive rights, birth control, sex education. And what I found in medical school was an alternative because you hear those things and you're like, OB-GYN, right? But when I did my OB-GYN rotation, there's a huge portion of surgery and I am not a fan of surgery. <laughs> and so then when I found adolescent medicine, I was like, this is where I can do outpatient gynecology without the surgery, without the OB. And so that pretty much drew me to pediatrics. You can come to adolescent medicine from family practice, from internal medicine or pediatrics. But I also liked the, the idea of pediatrics. What I love about pediatrics is you can catch them young when they're developing their habits and give them good habits. And so um, I like kids because there's hope that we can change them and, and help them for the better. You ended up doing then uh, your master's in public health, right? Yes. yes. Um, and that was also in maternal and child? Yes. Right. Exactly. Medicine. So how did you decide that? 
Yeah. So adolescent medicine was, as I said, I love reproductive health and it gave me an opportunity to do outpatient gynecology and adolescent medicine we call sex, drugs, rock and roll, a little acne and a little sports medicine. And as an academic, I knew I would focus. And so my focus would be sex, which is sexually transmitted diseases, preventing unplanned pregnancies and, you know, pelvic exams and contraception. And then I went to Children's Hospital Oakland for my residency, loved it there, and then did another three years to do an adolescent medicine fellowship at UCSF. And then the Masters of Public Health I see is kind of the MBA of medicine, right? It's a networking opportunity. And I focused on maternal child health because obviously pediatrics, that was an obvious kind of thing. And mm -hmm. I had an interest in obesity. And so that was my maternal child's health with a focus on obesity. So that entire year of my master's of public health was looking at obesity, treatment, prevention um, in the community of Berkeley, which has a really interesting population. They have the healthiest Caucasians in the world, but the disparity with the African-American community in that same city is huge. And you would hope that you could help each other. And that's what needs to be worked on. Um, I, since you have experience with health policy, I also actually kind of want to explore, did you find yourself also drawn to health policy because of the legislative aspect of it? Or were you deterred by it? And kind of for people who are interested in health policy, you know, how did you see people or yourself navigate that divide between doing more patient practice or doing more um, you know, policy-related things? Because it is also important, I guess, for our patients' care and yes. challenging. Yes. So, you know, as you can tell, I've always been an activist, you know, speak up when you see something wrong. I won an award for a um, woman who had contributed most at MIT to women's health. I won an award at UCSF for being the best advocate for students. And what we did at UCSF is we advocated for pass-fail second year because we noticed mm -hmm. when it went to pass-fail honors, the difference between honors and normal was one question. And first year, we all worked together and helped educate each other. But second year, if there's a difference between honors and not honors and one question we're all a bunch of cutthroat pre-meds you know that's how we got into UCSF we weren't helping anybody and nobody was sharing and it was a total flip around and so then Dean DeBoss was like if the students wants it make it so and I was like I love Dean DeBoss he's, he's so awesome so in terms of advocacy um, as a pediatrician we're always advocating and we're actually required to do a month of advocacy because babies and kids can't vote no one will speak for them. And oftentimes their parents are too tired or disenfranchised or low income that no one will fight for them. But when anybody with the words MD after their name writes a letter to the New York Times, we get published. And if we can throw in a patient story and we can throw in a statistic, we are respected and we should speak more. We should not be political on one side or the other necessarily, though I think there's a clear interest in this election, who believes in science and who listens to doctors and who doesn't. But we absolutely need to fight out there. So going back to your, uh, uh, after you did your master's in public health, did you go into academia? And then uh, where were you at that time? Yeah. So then I went to Stanford where I worked as and have worked as a clinical associate professor, which is mm -hmm. basically um, my, I get paid and evaluated on just seeing patients and not so much the research. And the research was on the side. Then where I was from 2004 until 2016. Okay. And that's, is that when you started the Pandia Health? 
Yes, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So about six years ago, I, in my academic hat, was giving a talk to a bunch of physicians. Why don't those pesky women take their birth control? And one of the top statistics was didn't have it in their hand, didn't have time to run to the pharmacy during the seven-day window that the insurance company allows to go get that medication. And I actually coined the phrase pill anxiety. You get to that last week of pills, and if you don't get your medication, you are stressed out. And during that last week, I have to get to the pharmacy. If I don't get to the pharmacy, it's always like in the back of your head. And those with uteruses suffer from this pill anxiety for 20 to 40 years of their lives every single month that you have to deal with getting your birth control. So my friend and I said, well, we can solve this. We'll just ship it to women and keep shipping it to you until you tell us to stop. And then we ran ads for free birth control delivery. 60% of the women that responded did not have a prescription. And I was like, do you not know in the United States to get birth control, prescription birth control, you need a prescription. And so as an entrepreneur, I didn't want to miss out on 60% of the customers. Mm -hmm. And we decided to do asynchronous telemedicine. And so that's how Pandia Health was born, the end-to-end solution for birth control. If your doctor writes a prescription, we just do the delivery. We charge you nothing. We bill your insurance for the medication. If you need a prescription, you just pay $20 once a year to use our passionate expert birth control physicians. We are the only doctor-led company in this space. We are the only women-founded, women-led company in this space. I'm the only CEO of a birth control company that has taken the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. And I want your listeners to help spread the word that there are differences between telemedicine companies. If it's run by a physician who's taken a Hippocratic Oath or a lawyer or an MBA who's just here to make money. And um, there's, you know, different ethics. We believe in informed consent. We need to give you all your options. The pill, the patch, the ring are the ones that we can supply by mail. You go to other platforms, you may see they aren't offering all the options. I did want to just also ask for your group, are you thinking um, there are still other people you're unable to access? Because I know you talk about the pill anxiety and obviously that's the motivation for the for the Pendia Health, but um, I do think that with uh, you know pro, uh, many programs, it's always a question of access. So who else are you still trying to reach? Yeah. No, what's beautiful about Pandia Health is we bring birth control to wherever you have internet and a mailbox, and it doesn't get better than that. And I love to say nor rain, nor sleet, nor snow is going to block our birth control because we use the U.S. Postal, and that is their logo. And so we are actually increasing access to 60 to 70% of the population. As I mentioned, we run an ad. These 60% without a prescription never would have gotten birth control. Um, So we are absolutely increasing access. The other thing, because I come from an activist background, I know about philanthropy and nonprofits. We are the only company that has a birth control fund. People can donate to the fund, tax deductible, and then we give out free um, medications and the online visit for whatever money we collect. So Dr. Yan, this, this is such an important work that you're doing. And um, thank, you. thank you for sharing your journey and all the important points that you made. Thank you so much for having me. And now for the disclaimer. The Journey to Medicine podcast and its guests provide general information and entertainment, but not medical advice. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the podcast. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. 
Views and opinions expressed by Journey to Medicine team are those of each individual and do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of the Journey to Medicine team and its guests, employers, sponsors, or organizations we are affiliated with. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for joining us.